Good morning, everybody. Hey, this morning we're going to continue our series. We're walking through prayer for the harvest. Uh, that's not our, our verse. Uh, we can't change that. It's actually a PDF. Today, we're, as we read, we're in Isaiah chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles or your, your electronic version, scroll to Isaiah chapter 12. Actually, what I'm going to ask you to do is go to Isaiah chapter 1 because we're going to have to walk through it a little bit here in a few minutes. Uh, but we're going to continue the prayer of the harvest. And our challenge this morning is what we're going to look at, and I hope I can get us across this, this challenge because I challenge myself, is we're going to look at the gospel presentation and the Great Commission from the Old Testament. So we're going to do a little bit, of, little bit of Old Testament history. So if you're a history buff, you're going to love this. If you're not, sorry, just hang in there. We'll get to some good stuff. But does anybody remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Dave always challenged me to have a movie reference. Sorry, it's not. Not, not your Libre, but Castaway. So if you haven't seen the movie, if you have, I'll just quickly review it. Uh, Tom Hanks is, is uh, in a plane crash. He ends up on this deserted island in the middle of the Pacific. No one knows he's there. And through the movie, I think they do a really good job for like the first hour and a half. It's nothing but him. And you get that sense of loneliness. and You get that sense of despair. But then he, he finds a little bit of encouragement. He learns how to survive. And then there's this crescendo time and he gets rescued. And I think they do a good job of evoking that emotion of what that was like. And he comes back home and he has all these ideas in his mind of what it's going to be like to reunite with his, with his fiance or girlfriend. I can't remember what Helen Hunt's character was. But anyway, he gets back and none of that happens. So there's a little bit of, oh man, I'm rescued, but there's still life. Life still goes on. Life goes on for other people. So I just want you to think about what are the desert islands in your life? Where have you been where you felt alone? You felt isolated? And in your mind, you thought about and you dreamed about what would it be like when I get to X, whatever that is in life, and you forecast out and you get there, it's quite not what you expected. So think about that. Now, sometimes that can be a little depressing, can it? But what I want you to see is that God is always there with you, no matter what you're going through. God is with you in those troubling times, in those times of isolation, and he is your rescuer and your redeemer. And although it may seem rocky, God's plan is going to play out in your life. And there's going to be a time and there's going to be a day you're going to look back and go, Oh, I know why that happened now. Now as we were walking through our series, uh, John, the, the first week of the series, he looked at the parable of the harvest. And Jesus has his disciples there in the field. And he's, he says, Look out into this field. This harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plenty, but I need more workers. And Jesus was telling his disciples, he was preparing him, said, I'm going to send you out. You're not going to be following me. I'm going to send you out on the Great Commission. You're going to do some great work. And he's saying the same thing to us today. But he's saying, fear not, for I'm going to go with you. My power will go with you. And he talked about, John, John encouraged us to, as before we go out, that we need to find rest in Christ and we need to be in deep prayer. And he challenged us to think about who is your next one person you're praying for. Someone who's really close to you, but maybe far away from God. Who are you going to pray for? And then last week, we talked about the parable of the sower. And there's a sower, and he's spreading the word of God. He's spreading the gospel, and there's these four soils. And, and some are very fertile, and some are very rocky, and there's some in between. And we talked about and challenged us, what does your soil look like? Do you have that fertile soil? Are you walking with God? Are you nourishing it every day? Are you getting that, that wellspring of life? Are you tending to it? Or you just kind of ignoring it and going through life and you, and you kind of maybe read your devotion maybe once a week and it's kind of, it's kind of barren. 
God's calling us back to him and, hey, receive the power of the gospel and then spread it. But before you spread it, you need to be in deep prayer. So again, our focus on this harvest is, number one, be in prayer with God, receive the gospel, but also let it grow within you. Don't let it get choked out by the weeds of the world, but let, it, let your heart be aligned with God. Our focus is priority of this, of this series is really an intentional prayer. Prayer for yourself and prayer for others. And be praying for what are, the, what are the opportunities that God has given me for the Holy Spirit to enter into this conversation with someone who may be really far from God, but they're near to me. How can I be part of that? Now, does God need you? He doesn't, he doesn't need you. He's all-powerful, but he wants us. He wants us as part of his plan. I mean, who's, who better to reach your loved ones and your best friend in a real authentic way in a relationship you are he wants to use you but you need to be connected with him and know his heart last week john spoke about operating out a position of rest so as he commissioned his disciples the previous chapter had him had him resting so he was saying rest in me physically and emotionally and spiritually before i go send you out now this is not to take a nap and a long vacation but this is to prepare our hearts and our minds because when you go out we go out into the world, and I don't know if you all have been watching the news or you experience people around you or you drive down 264, but there's sinful people out there, and they can cause some problems, and they can influence us. So we need to operate a position of rest. What I want to look at today, go to our, our next slide. Good news to share from Isaiah. Let's go keep going. So not only to operate out of a place of rest, but today I want you to see we're going to operate, operate out of a place or a position of rescue. Operating out of a place or a position of rescue. And, we're, and here's our roadmap for the our rest of our time. We're going to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 12. We're going to read it again. And number one, I want you to see our response. There's two responses in this, in this little poem. And the first one is our personal worship. And the second one is our corporate proclamation of the holiness of God. So your personal response and our corporate response. So before we get there, though, I don't want to just jump into chapter 12 because chapter 12 in Isaiah, if you're an Isaiah student, is actually the end of the first section of Isaiah. Isaiah is long. It's like 66 books. So chapter 12 closes the very first portion of it, and it's kind of a prelude, prelude rather. But I want to walk through it really quickly because if we just jump right into this great song without the context, it just sounds kind of good. It's kind of like some lyrics to a song we don't really understand who wrote it and why. So I want to walk through this. If you go back to chapter 1 of Isaiah, and this may take a, a few minutes, but we're going to go through it quickly. But who is Isaiah? In chapter 1, verse 1, we see Isaiah. He is the son of Amos. Well, who is that? Well, we could go back and dig into that. It's not really that important, but here's this guy. He's the son, and he's serving the days of Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So right up front, Isaiah is saying, this is who I am, and this is when I am. Because we know the dates extra-biblically of these kings. Chapter 6, we see that Isaiah, he kind of goes backwards in time a little bit, but he, he describes very detailed his calling of God to be a prophet, so speaking for God. And he says, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died. So we know that was about 740 B.C. So 740 years before Christ came on the scene, here's Isaiah. He's called to be a prophet. And if, you, if you look at most prophets of the Old Testament, they didn't really want to be prophets. I mean, who really wants to say, or volunteer for the job to go out on the street corner and point your finger at everybody and say you're wrong? Anybody want that job? No? No? Some of us may. 
It's a hard job. Anyway, so Isaiah, this is 740 B.C., and he kicks off this book in a very interesting way. Now, I don't know about you all, but if I have to tell someone that they're wrong or I have to rebuke them or challenge them or mentor them or correct them, usually I kind of put it between two, it's kind of like a sandwich, right? So the stuff in the middle is what you got to tell them it's bad, but you put the nice buns on the outside so it's kind of really sweet. Hey, you're doing, I really like you. I really like you working here. You're not really doing your job real well, but I like, I'm glad you're here, right? That's how you do it. You bring them in and you hit them and then you, and then you pat them on the way out, right? I know some of y'all do that with your kids. I've seen you do it. Isaiah does not do that. Look at verse 2. The vision of Isaiah, and then he says, Hear, O Israel, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4, O sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers. How's that sound? He forgot the bun. He just went right to it. But that's what God is doing. God is laying this upon his heart. In chapter 1, he walks through Judah, so there's, uh, Isaiah is preaching to Judah. So real quick in, in Hebrew history, anybody heard about two nations or Israel? Okay, so Israel country, right? God's people. They came out of Egypt. Later on, there's sin and all kinds of stuff, and there's King David, and he does some weird things. He's, he has his own failures. And Solomon, his son, takes over, and the kingdom is divided. So there are 12 tribes, 10 of the northern tribes, and two of the southern tribes, and Benjamin gets absorbed. So there's now Judah. And Israel. So when you read the book of Chronicles and Kings, first and second, both of them, you'll see there's Israel and Judah. It's the same nation. It's all the Israelites, but there's a division. It becomes two kings. They're both Hebrew, and they don't really like each other. So there's this division within the house. You can imagine two brothers who don't like each other. Kind of a picture of the sinfulness of who we are. And they come in and out of fellowship with God. As you read those books, you say, and this guy became king, and he was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this guy became king, and he was good in the sight of the Lord. So this is what's going on. There's Judah and Israel, two nations, but the same people. So Jeremiah is proclaiming wickedness of Judah. So this is the, the clan around Jerusalem. And then there's the northern kingdom. So that's important to understand. So he says, hey, you all are wicked. You're, you're far away from God. Now, this is about 250 years after King David and Solomon. So it's a couple, several generations, about as old as our country is now. So think of King David was, was Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, and now we're in today. And how far have we come morally and culturally since then? Yeah, right, yeah. Some people would say, well, we've really improved. And some people would say, no, we haven't, <laughs> right? So that's where they are today. And that's what he's preaching against. And then he goes through, as you read Isaiah, there's all this judgment all through Isaiah. But then he sprinkles in through there these little captures and these little vignettes of God saying that I'm going to, even though I'm going to bring some judgment because I'm holy, there's going to be some salvation in there. He sprinkles in this idea of remnant throughout. And you see that in, in the very first chapter after he opens up so well. So glad to see you all sinful people. In verse 18, he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, although they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing to be obedient, you shall eat the good of the Lord. And then the next verse says, If you refuse, there will be judgment. So there's Isaiah. A couple of themes through Isaiah. Uh, the whole book of Isaiah is important to remember because they're going to tie into Isaiah chapter 12. Again, we're doing a little run-up to get there. Big theme of it is the remnant of Israel. God 
in his holiness. He is perfectly loving, but he's also perfectly just, which means he loves us deeply and wholeheartedly. He wants us to be with him, but we carry the stain of sin and we can't be in his presence, otherwise he wouldn't be holy. So he has to judge that sin. And we read the Old Testament a lot and we say, oh, he's a judgeful, wrathful God. No, it's just he's the same God. Where he's just showing us that if, when you get out of fellowship with him, he's got to bring some correction into your life. And sometimes we read the Old Testament like, oh, man, you Israelites, how can you possibly do that? How can you be so wicked? That's a picture of who we are in our own heart. And you're going to see that in chapter 5 coming up. So hold on to that. The remnant of Israel. And because God is holy, the other theme is the sovereignty of God is all through Isaiah. He speaks about it. God is sovereign. He is the one true God sitting on the eternal throne forever. Therefore, we should respond to him appropriately. We should respond to him as his following servants. So that's another theme through here is the servants of God. The other servant of God is going to be, as you're going to see, ties into the other theme, which is the Messiah. Often, Isaiah is called the fifth gospel. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Isaiah. So you're going to see the Messiah all through this, and we're going to see it here in a few minutes. It's going to be beautiful. And then he has this phrase, and Katie read it. It's, it's through, all throughout this book, and it's the title, The Holy One of Israel. And you're going to see it. He mentions the Holy One of Israel 28 times in this book. It's only mentioned three other times in the entire Old Testament. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the sovereignty of God and his holiness, the Holy One of Israel. He's the one true God of Israel. Think back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I will be your God. You will be my people. But now with Christ on the scene, you're going to see where we are now grafted in. And although he's the Holy One of Israel, he is the Holy One of the world of us. So the Holy One of Israel, whenever you see that, think of the salvific nature, the Redeemer God who's there to redeem us from the wickedness of our sin from chapter 1. Rebellious children. Um, and then verse, or chapter 2, chapter 2 and 3, he has this coming of the kingdom. He has this picture of what it's going to be like when God, the sovereign king, sits on the throne forever. It's going to be fantastic. There's going to be more judgment. There's going to be a remnant, although he's going to judge. He's going he's to protect some of them and bring them back. Uh, but then there's more judgment. So he kind of comes in and out. Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is uh, where it shifts. He does a shift here from the corporate nation, the sinful nation of Judah, a little bit of Israel. Chapter 5 is all about you and all about me because now he gets very personal. And through chapter 5, when he walks through there, you'll see there are six statements of woe. Woe to this person. Woe to that person. If God says, hey, woe to you, you better pay attention because you're about to run off a cliff. And here are the six woes he has in chapter 5. And I want you to think about, as I, as I list them off, and kind of how I've, I've read through them in my words, think about how they apply to you individually, but also how they, how they manifest themselves in our culture today. See if you see any parallels. Number one, the first woe is to greed. He talks about those who have property and they get more property and they're getting more property and they're buying it at low cost and they're bringing it all in. It's all about them getting stuff. It's greed. Now, there is a capitalist system there. He doesn't bash that. What he's bashing is the greed and the, and the selfishness of the heart of the people. So there's greed. Anybody seen greed around today? No? Okay. Uh, two, the second one. And this one's kind of funny. I want you to take a look at it. Chapter 5. 
because God, I think God put some humor in here just to keep our attention. Chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink and tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, sorry Dave, uh, tambourine, flute, and wine at their feast, and they do not regard the deeds of the Lord. So these are, these are your perpetual uh, fraternity partying dudes who never do anything but drink and party. Sound like a good time? Well, yeah, but they're, they're selfish. They're all about themselves. So I think that's funny. So these are, these are the drunkards and uh, the endless partiers who don't really do anything in their life but other than just hedonistic things. The third one, this one may be a little bit more personal. The woe is to those of you who, who think you're good, but you've got that little small hidden sin that nobody knows about, and you justify it. How do you justify it? You're like, ah, well, you know, I have this one little thing. I don't want to give this up because it doesn't really hurt anybody. It's just a small thing. Nobody knows about it. It's not going to impact anybody. It's not like I'm, it's not like I'm stealing from, from the, the charities and cheating on my spouse. Yeah, but are you, are you cheating on your taxes? It's a small little infractions of the morality of your character that no one sees, but God sees. And the problem with that is that turns into the next woe, which is the morally perverse people, because those small things will grow into larger things. And this is where you see, I think, the culture today. This number fourth woe is probably the most dangerous because it's insidious. And you see it today. This is where you have the minority loud voices who have exchanged good for bad and bad for good. And they say, yeah, I know that God says that is bad, but that's actually good. And because you believe that God says it's bad, then you're wrong. You're actually bad. They've exchanged bad for good and good for bad. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says they've exchanged the glory of the creator for the glory of the creature. And he judges this. Today we have, all through our culture, just... They're saying that black is white and white is black. They don't hold to any kind of truth. Truth is relative. And you hear it framed this way. Well, this is my truth. Well, is it really true or is it just your opinion? You're going to force that upon somebody else. I think the greatest example of this is, I don't want to dive into politics, but I will, is our government telling parents they have no right over what the children what their children do or decide. I don't know about you all, but I don't, I don't know who thinks that a government bureaucracy has a better idea about your children than you do, parents. So they're saying bad is good, good is bad. Okay, off my soapbox, because we go on forever on that one. The fifth woe. This is the people who, who look at themselves and exalt themselves above God. It says they, they, they are exchanging again the creature and the creator. They exalt themselves above God. Um, they know what's right, best for them. They do, this is what it feels right to me. This is my truth, therefore I'm going to do it. I don't care what God says. And then the fifth one is the opportunistics. These are the people, and look, look down in verse uh, 23. It's a woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, and they deprive the innocent of his own right. So they're judging, and they're saying, hey, this person's guilty, but if you pay me enough money, I'll say, they're, I'll say that they're innocent. Does that happen today? Yeah, maybe. Do you do that in your own heart sometimes? If it's, if it's for you, maybe. 
Okay, so there's the, there's the uh, six woes. There's a little bit of us in there and a little bit of culture in there. Then, as I mentioned, chapter 6 is about the call of, of Isaiah. It's a beautiful uh, uh, picture of Isaiah standing in the throne room of God, comparing himself to the holiness of God and saying, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live in a, in a, in just in a culture that is unclean. Woe is me. And God says, okay, Isaiah, let's, let's get something straight. You're not your own judge. I am. You may, be guilt, you may feel guilty and you may want to repent, but I'm the one who's qualified you. I'm the one who's calling you. And Isaiah, you are clean based on my holiness. When Isaiah realizes this, standing in the throne room of God, and God says, hey, who's going to go out and preach to my people? Isaiah goes, eh, I don't know. I've got something to do today. That's not what he does. He says, here I am. Send me. His response to God's correction and his qualification of Isaiah is, I'll go, I'll do whatever you need me to do, God. So God says, okay, here it comes. So then we get to verse 7 and 8. And this is where the Christmas story ties in. Starting in chapter 7, uh, he says, okay, if you want me to send you, Isaiah, if you're ready to go, here's what you're going to do. Take your son and go to King Ahaz. When you're reading about King Ahaz, he was not a good king. He was a very evil king. And he says, go to your with your son, and tell King Ahaz what you, the alliances you're about to make with this small little unknown culture of people called the Assyrians is not a good thing. Don't do it. Don't align yourself with them for your own self, self-protection and your self-advancement because I'm going to take care of this. Don't do it. It's going to cause bad things down in the future. And take your son, and his son's name, which is interesting, his son's name uh, translated is a remnant will return. He says, take your son, remnant return. So it's a picture of Isaiah going to Ahaz saying, the son, the remnant, I'm going to take care of. I'm going to preserve it. Ahaz, it's not up to you to preserve the throne of David, which I made a promise to. I got this. I just need you to listen to me. So, like the great king that Isaiah was, or not Isaiah, Ahaz, did he he listen to him? Everybody who says yes, raise your hand. Everybody says no, raise your hand. You don't know, raise your hand. He did not listen to him. He said, nope, not going to do it. I, I'm, I'm not going to trust this guy because um, yeah, I'm selfish. All the woes, remember? The interesting part of this is God made this promise with saying, here's my promise, here's my sign that I'm going to take care of this. And he says that a virgin is going to bear a son, you're going to call his name Emmanuel. And that's where we, we bring in the Christmas story. Because Isaiah does not, or not Isaiah, Ahaz, King Ahaz, does not believe him, there is a son that is born. But this son's name is an interesting name. They don't call him uh, Emmanuel. Flip over and look at chapter 8, verse number 1. Chapter 8, the end of verse number 1 is a very long name. It's probably in four different syllables there. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it's a transliteration of Hebrew, which I cannot do. But, you know, some of you all name your kids biblical names. You know, we've, we've, got, we've got some Hannahs and we've got some Jacobs and stuff like that of your children, right? So who would name your kid this? So here's how it's translated. It's not Emmanuel. They name him, imagine your kid named this, Swift is the plunder, Speedy is the prey. So get the picture. Isaiah goes in with his first son whose name the remnant will return. Ahaz, listen to God. 
The son's there. Listen to God. The remnant's going to return. So he's saying, Ahaz, God's got this. Just trust him. Ahaz goes, nope, not going to do it. So he sends another son named Swift as the plunder and speedy as the prey. That's the judgment of God. God said, I could have been with you. You chose door B. Therefore, swift is going to be judgment, and it's going to come fast. And oh, by the way, since you're king over the people that I appointed you to, it's going to impact them as well. Although, later in chapter 8, he says, I will protect the remnant, but the majority, it's going to be kind of painful. Look down with me in um, chapter 8, verse 19. Let's bring that up. I'm just going to kind of walk them. I'm not going to read it all. The remnant's going to be uh, uh, protected. However, they're going to be, they're, they're going to be uh, surrounded. There's going to be uh, threats of, of capture. There's going to be some um, starvation. All kinds of bad things are going to happen. And it's going to be, get so bad that they're going to say, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. And God says, they should turn to me, but they're going to go to anything they can to get to relieve their pain. And down in verse 22, let's go to that one. Verse 22, behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So King Ahaz, by not listening to God, his people and he will be thrust into great darkness. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? Yeah. So this, should we pray and go home at this point? No. Chapter 9, the very first word. Someone read it out loud to me. First word of chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So again, here's the remnant. In former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So that's just a... That's great wording for, hey, sin came into the land. You didn't listen to me. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Isaiah did not know when he was writing this, this poetic language, that the Messiah that he's about to talk about will start his ministry where? In Galilee. He will go beyond the Jordan to carry out his ministry to redeem the nations. How cool is that? Read the next verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep, of deep darkness, on them has, a light has shined. And what is that light? Verse 6. Maybe you've heard this, maybe at Christmas. Here's the light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall call him, and he shall be, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it. So there's God's promise of fulfilling the Davidic promise that, hey, David, your son's going to sit on the throne forever. He's going to be a blessing to all the nations. This is Isaiah writing this remnant is going to be saved by this great king. But is he just a man? No. Let's continue on. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what king can sit on the throne from this time forth and forevermore? Only an eternal king can do that. Isaiah right here is introducing the Messiah. 
He is the child that will be born. He will be the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace forever. And that's who's going to pull us into, out of this darkness, this remnant. So, after all that great preaching, did they, uh, did they respond? Nope. Nope, they didn't. So we get, we get more judgment uh, in chapter 9, chapter 10. Um, there's more rebellion. And, but this is, this is the hearts of who we are. We get excited about God. We get emotional about God. We're on fire for God, and then just life happens. And this is what's going on here. But he continues to preach. He continues to promise that, that although there will be judgment, there's going to be a remnant. So let's go to chapter 10, verse 21. Verse 20. So in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob. Okay, so what's going to happen? He's predicting, and this, this, this comes to fruition, that there will be a nation, Assyria, that's going to come and carry away those, those ten tribes of the north. And that does happen in 722 B.C. God's judgment comes and carries them away. They're defeated. And then, and then about 35 years later, Babylon comes to power. They defeat the Syrians, and they come in, and they sack and besiege, and they eventually carry away Judah. And that's where we get Daniel, Ezekiel, and then later on, Nehemiah and Ezra, they come back. So all this is, all this is predicted. But in that day, a remnant of Israel, so there's your northern kingdoms, and the survivors of the house of Jacob, so that's the ones carried off in the Babylon, will no more lean on him who struck them. So they're not going to rely upon the kings and the feeders for their sustenance and stability, but they will, they will lean on the Lord, verse 20, the Holy One of Israel. There it is. The Holy One of Israel is who they're going to lean on in truth. So after judgment comes, after you have suffered from your sin, after you recognize that you're in need of a Savior, you finally return back to God and you lean on the Holy One of Israel. Does this sound like the gospel? Does this sound like Isaiah's gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of your sin? I think so. Verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. He uses the name of the first son of Isaiah. He comes back to it. You know, the sons, the remnant will return. Emmanuel, which he rejected, which turned into, hey, swift is the prey and all that stuff. Go back to the first son, the remnant will return. How is he going to return? Let's look at uh, chapter 11. Probably one of the coolest chapters. And a lot of people like Isaiah 53 because it talks about the suffering servant of Christ. But this is cool. Verse 1 of chapter 11. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear the fruit. So again, he's talking about David's kingdom, even though the, the tribes are going to be taken away into captivity. So think of Judah, this tree that he's going to cut down. It's going to be cut down by the Babylonians. Have you ever seen a tree that's been cut down and a shoot of a tree grows up out of it? A brand new tree? That's, what he's, that's the picture here. That shoot of Jesse, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall judge righteousness. And he goes on and on and on. It has this, this very idyllic language of a divine shoot of Jesse that's going to be the redeemer, the rescuer. This is Isaiah introducing the Messiah. It's going to come from David. 
And we sing about that at Christmas. Verses 2 through uh, 3, he talks about the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. What's interesting is we, we compare this because he's comparing this king to David. When David was anointed king, it says the Spirit descended upon him. The Spirit was with him. Here, this is a fourfold anointing of the Spirit. So this is, this is greater than David, and it's divine. So it's, it's very poetic language which says this is the Messiah. Okay, now, we're almost done with the history lesson. We've got two more verses. Ready? Go down to verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. So this Messiah, this root of Jesse, is going to grab a hold of the remnant, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. So what's this imagery? What comes to your mind here? The tongue of the river of Egypt. He's talking about, he's looking back to when they were in captivity in Egypt, and, he, and God split the Red Sea to bring them into the promised land. God rescued them out of slavery, which is a picture of our sin. He split the Red Sea and brought them out. And he's saying this Messiah is going to do the same thing. He's going to do it for all the nations. And he's going to split this river, which is also a barrier, so you can walk across in sandals, not high knee boots, not a boat. You can walk across in sandals. So he's going to remove every barrier. There's no barrier anywhere that's going to hinder the Lord's protection and promise and power to preserve you in this remnant. He's going to redeem his people, and he's going to do everything he can to make it happen. Even though there's going to be judgment, he's got you in the cradle of his hand if you know him. Isn't that good? Isn't that cool? Now, that's a lot through a lot of poetry and, a whole, and Old Testament history here. You've got to dig through it to get it. So what is our proper response to that? We should maybe sing a worship song, shouldn't we? We're opening with a worship song. We close with a worship song. Maybe we should sing a song, right? That's what Isaiah says, too. So he has a song for us in chapter 12. So I want to read this together with us again. And we'll look at our responses in close. So after knowing that Although the God in his holiness, he has to bring judgment on sin. Corporately and individually, but he's got a way for you. Verse 16, this last verse before we go into the song, he says, There will be a highway from Assyria. So Assyria is the judgment on the northern kingdoms. There's going to be a highway for the remnant that remains of the people as it was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So it's another picture. God's going to build a highway to himself for you. Away from your sin, away from all those woes in chapter 5, to him through the Messiah. So what's our response? Verse 12. You will say in that day, what day is that? The day the highway is there and you see God. You will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away from me, and you might comfort me. So not only were you angry at my sin, but you provided a highway for me to get to you, and then you comforted me through that process. So that's our personal worship. We're to receive this Lord's redemption. And this, this starts off with you. Now, is this you, or is this you? This first three verses are all about individual. 
Chapter 5 is about your individual sins. First three verses is about your individual response. It is singular. You will give thanks to the Lord for though, God, you were angry with me in your preservation, in your love for me, you appeased your own wrath. You took the anger that you had towards my sin and you took care of it yourself. So is there anything I had to do? How did he do that? Is there anything that I have to do? He says, no. All I need you to do is believe in me. It's not based on your performance. There's nothing here that says that these people of Israel had to get away from their woes. All they had to do was turn back and look at God and say, God, I'll lean upon you for everything. I'm not going to lean upon my status, my position, my power, my ability. I just look at you. You have built a highway, and that's good enough for me. Did it depend upon the fact that they were... uh, from Judah, they were Israel as well. In Isaiah's context, yes. But in our new context today, we are rooted and we're grafted into that stump of Jesse. We're there with him. So it has nothing to do with we're Jews or Gentiles. Paul talks about this. We're all hopelessly rife with sin, but God in his free gift offered us the avenue to him. And why wouldn't we praise him and give him thanks for that? Because of this righteous reign of this branch of, of Chapter 11, the wonderful counsel, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, you have access to the Father. But he says, all I need you to do is receive it. So look, verse 2, here's how you receive it. Behold, so this is what you're saying. You're singing this song. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. and He has become my salvation. That's the personal name of God in there. That's not just like some God out there, some little G God. This is the Yah of Yahweh. God is my strength and my song. There's nothing in your power you can do to save yourself. It's all about what God has done. Paul says, all you have to do is just believe it. So now there's this theological thing out there. Is this all work of God or is this is this you or is this this mystery in between? Do you have to believe in Christ and do all these sacraments and do all these, these things? God says, no. For you've been saved by grace through your faith. It's God's grace that brings you to this, but he does need you to exercise faith in him. He needs you to believe in him. He needs you to see and proclaim in verse 2 that he is your strength and he is your salvation. In other words, don't lean on yourself. Turn to God and lean on him. Our response to understanding this is giving thanks, beholding his, his beauty and his power and his salvation. Verse 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, there's a slight shift here. This is personal, but this you also starts to go plural. So this is the gospel community coming together, going to the well of salvation. At the beginning, Dave read the story about going to the well in Samaria. When Jesus met the woman there and said, I have living water for you. And I would really like to say that Dave and I planned that. But we didn't. Because that is the picture here. And it's actually in my notes to talk about that. And when Dave prayed that at the beginning, I was standing back there and I was like, thank you, God, because you put all this together. This well, Jesus says, I am the living water. He who thirsts will come after me and will never thirst again. Now, 
you know, in the story, the lady actually believes it's, it's actual water, but as we know, it's spiritual. Let me read you a couple of psalms that tie into this. Psalm 63, 1. David says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And later in Psalm 65, he says, But God, you visited the earth and you watered it. You greatly enriched it. The river of God is full of water. You provide it. And you, it's overflowed in abundance. Let's pull up that uh, Revelation verse. Look at Revelation 7, 17 with me. So there's the psalm, there's Isaiah, there's this well, there's the living water, it's refreshing. And then Revelation, for the Lamb, that's Jesus. The Lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water to himself, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that cool? Isn't that beautiful? My question is, this first three verses, can you sing that song? We often stand and we sing together, and are you just singing the melody? Are you singing the purpose and the reasons and the meanings of those words behind that song? And can you sing this song? If not, I encourage you to lean upon God and see that Jesus is that highway. He says, wipe away every tear. It doesn't mean it's going to be great and wonderful because we still live in a land of unclean people and judgment's going to come. And sometimes, you know, I notice when I go outside and it's raining, it's raining on my neighbors and it rains on me too. But thank God I have the encouragement that he's there with me no matter what. Let's walk through the rest of it. Verse 4. And you, this is, now, now we've shifted from individual to corporate. Verse, verse number 1 says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Verse 4 says, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. So we are to give thanks individually. We come together in a corporate worship and to give thanks to God, calling upon his name, making known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. So this is our second point. Number one, receive the gospel and worship him. Number two, it's not up there. Number two, we corporately proclaim the holiness of God. This is Isaiah's great commission. Jesus said, go therefore in all the nations, baptize in my name, making disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isaiah is saying the same thing by coming together, proclaiming his name, make known the deeds, sing praises to the Lord, verse 5, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Sing and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. We're part of the plan. He says, as I rescue you, as I redeem you, I need you to proclaim that. I need you to talk about me and my forgiveness for you and my redemption to those that are close to you but are far away and not heard this. You are part of the remnant, and my plan is to use you to bless the nations as I promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and to us. But he doesn't send us out there alone. Verse 6, sing and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Look at the last verse. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. There it is again. We're not doing it by ourselves. The Holy One of Israel is with us. His presence is with us. Exodus 25, God tells the, uh, in very detail, he tells the Israelites, hey, build me a tent, build me a tabernacle so that my presence can be there with you. I can be in your midst and I can commune with you and, you can, and I can see you, you can see me. 
Later on, they build a temple for the same reason. And then Jesus comes on the scene. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He was God, and He became flesh and dwelt in our midst. He told His disciples, I have to go. There's going to be a death, there's going to be a burial, there's going to be a resurrection, and then I'm going to go into glorification, but I will send another to be in your midst with you, the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always. And I will come and gather you again. So that God is in the midst. We're in, the, in that process of He has come, He is here. It's the day. In that day, we're there. But it's not fully filled yet. He's got, he has some work for us to do. We're to be on mission for Him in deep prayer, recognizing that that highway through Christ is what brings us into His presence. Imagine if you had the greatest news that you could possibly tell anybody. It could be small. How many of y'all have shared, like, hey, something's on sale over here, or I've got a great restaurant to go to that you'd really like? Anybody share anything like that with a friend? Yeah. This weekend, I, uh, I noticed, and I'm not, I'm not advocating uh, uh, lottery systems, but I noticed the Powerball, somebody in Maine won the $1.3 billion Powerball, right? What if you knew how to not cheat, but you knew how to legally and morally win that Powerball every week? The question is, would you hold that information for yourself? I mean, how many billion dollars do you really need to live comfortably for the rest of your life? Would you not share that with maybe your spouse or maybe your brother or maybe your sister, maybe your other brother that you really like? You might want to share that news. Or if you're like Tom Hanks, stuck on that, uh, that island, but you knew how to give him, drop him a GPS, would you have done that? Why not tell someone about the greatest story and the greatest news that has eternal impact to your life? Here and now, but also for eternity. I think I'll go for the, for the second one. Isaiah is preaching the same message. He's saying, you have won the eternal life and the most glorious kingdom forever, so spread it. But be in deep prayer, be responsive to the Holy Spirit. And I challenge you this week, for your prayer this week, maybe pray for one John and, John and Hannah. Pray for the, your next one. And then pray this prayer. And I'm going to close this by praying through chap, uh, verses 1 through 3 as Dave and your team comes. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, because of this day of redemption you've brought me, I give you thanks. Father, it blows me away that in your anger and your wrath towards sin, and that's where I am, you're, you turn that away within yourself, nothing, nothing by what I did other than I believe in you. Father, you are my salvation. Father, I will trust in you, and I will not be afraid. For Lord, you are my strength, and you are the song that I will sing because I proclaim that you are my salvation. With the greatest of joy, joys, Lord, I look to you as the living water and the well of my salvation. Father, what a beautiful thing it is that you redeem us. I thank you for the history you've laid out for us. Help us to not see this as just a walk through time, but we see this as a part of your eternal plan to redeem each one of us back to you in the garden. 
in the beauty of the presence of the holiness of you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.